Next weekend, I will have a small part in a production of T.S. Eliot's play, Murder in the Cathedral. It focuses on the famous event in the year 1170 in which King Henry II's henchman killed the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, in the struggle for power between the crown and the church. Significantly, Eliot wrote this play in England in the mid-1930s when Hitler was consolidating his power in Germany and a second world war was looming less than 20 years after the first. One can sense the despondency and weariness that many felt at the time in the words of one character early in the play as, as he contemplates the crisis at hand. I see nothing, he remarked, quite conclusive in the art of temporal government, but violence, duplicity, and frequent malversation. That means corruption. King, I didn't know. King, king rules or barons rule, the strong man strongly and the weak man by caprice. They have but one law, to seize the power and keep it, and the steadfast can manipulate the greed and lust of others. The feeble is devoured by his own. Sadly, this makes me think of our own day. The brutal murder of, Sau of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi seems like something right out of the Middle Ages. Horrible. We Americans often seem callous to brutality, not only abroad, but here at home. We, we uh, overlook or dismiss uh, very valid claims of mistreatment, by, especially by women, people of color, and other minorities. Our politics seem more brutal than perhaps at any time since the Civil War. It is tempting to agree with the 17th century English philosopher Thomas Hobbes that people in all ages exhibit a perpetual and restless desire for power after power that ceaseth only in death. Yet, of course, we want to hope that something different, something better, some sort of overall progress is possible. Authors of major books have recently sought to bolster this hope by putting present-day troubles in historical context. One such author is John Meacham, who spoke here last month. He reminds us that what he and Abraham Lincoln call the better angels of our nature have at times shaped this country. You have to see that side. Generosity has sometimes prevailed over selfishness, despite many examples to the contrary. Meacham says that for all its shortcomings, the America of the 21st century is freer and more accepting than it has ever been. Like a doctor issuing a prescription, he notes that we Americans can do, uh, he notes what we Americans can do to ensure that the better angels of our nature have the upper hand. Be involved in the political arena. Resist tribalism. Respect facts and deploy reason. Find a critical balance and keep history in mind. If we remain true to our national creed of progress, 
rooted in the equal enjoyment of God-given rights, Meacham assures us, we can live in hope rather than fear. He essentially agrees with the country's founders, people of the Enlightenment, who emphasized human effort really more than divine grace as the key to happiness. The uh, people of the Enlightenment essentially thought they, that, that God was sort of acting directly through us and was, was sort of a tacit presence and that uh, we were the, we're the real actors, not, not God so much. But another, there's another book that came out recently, another bestseller that I think um, gives a basis of hope that is more classically Christian, and that is Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. She studies the development of four leaders who ultimately served as presidents of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson. Despite the many differences among these men, Goodwin describes how the leadership qualities of each were refined in the fires of adversity. By the time they were in their late 20s, Goodwin notes, all four young men knew that they were leaders. In public service, they had found a calling. They had chosen to stand before the people and ask for their support to make themselves vulnerable. Already these young men resembled sketches of the leaders we would recognize in the years that followed. For these sketches to become full portraits, however, would require the ability to transcend both public and private adversity. All suffered in various ways, faced up to their weaknesses, and overcame obstacles in ways that enable them to serve not just themselves, but others. Obviously, maybe the key mark of a great leader. Goodwin does not touch explicitly on religion here, but she describes a pattern of personal development that echoes the way of the cross, which leads paradoxically to life. Following the way of Jesus, we must humble ourselves, learning and growing and dying to self so that we might be fully alive in ways that God intends. We all, like the presidents Goodwin discusses, have a divinely appointed destiny, and it is our privilege and joy to follow the path that leads to it, even though, as the Lord tells the disciples in today's gospel, we will inevitably suffer in the process. That sounds pretty daunting, and classical Christianity tells us that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot become the people we're meant to be without help. Our hope is not in our virtues or actions directly, but in our Lord Jesus Christ, who walked this way before us as no human being has ever done before or since. Today's reading from Hebrews says that Jesus was made perfect. That sounds funny, but what it, it doesn't mean that he was imperfect before. What it means is that, is that he followed his calling step by step with complete faithfulness. 
fulfilling his destiny completely. Humbly accepting the suffering that this entailed, he fulfilled his purpose, both human purpose and divine purpose, of saving us. That means, in my book, of ending our estrangement from God and each other so that we might live for a change in loving communion with God and each other. Another way is possible than that horrible scene I was painting (laughs) at the beginning. I would say that we Christians piggyback on Jesus' faithfulness and his righteousness because we don't have enough of either (laughs) on our own. Jesus, Hebrews tells us, I love this expression, is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Where he has gone, we can go, not because of our own abilities, but because through grace we're united to him forever in baptism. That's that piggybacking. We can go go in because he's going ahead of us. He has opened up for us what the letter to the Hebrews calls a new and living way. Different from the old worldly ways, power-hungry, ruthless. Because he has pioneered a new way for us and nurtures our growth in him toward our own perfection, toward our own fulfillment of our destiny, we don't have to fear anything. Not the crosses of our lives, not even death. When I started thinking about preaching this good news today, the hymn we just sang came to mind. I just love that hymn. <laughs> it's, the text is by Charles Wesley, who I think is, is the premier writer of hymn text. He was both a good Anglican and Methodist. And this hymn, it's an Easter hymn. I think in the middle of the fall we need an Easter hymn. <laughs> he, he gets to the heart of what we are celebrating. Love's redeeming work is done, he declares. Fought the fight, the battle won. This means that Christ's priestly faithfulness in linking God and humanity has made possible what would otherwise be impossible. He's changed the whole moral context of the universe. There are some gaps among us that are so great that they can only be bridged by the grace of God. We so often, for example, see the legacy of a sad history still affecting relations between folks on different sides of what has been called the color line fostering suspicion and estrangement, if not hatred. But we can overcome that through grace. I think African Americans in particular have a lot to forgive. That, you know, to put put history aside would be hard. But we see how in many cases, love rooted in Christ has taken away all negative feeling. And I, I, I have seen that in other cases where somebody's hurt somebody else. And that person who was hurt is able to forgive through grace to the point that there's no sting anymore. It, there's no negative feeling. And that's, to me, that's a miracle. Uh, this uh, going away of the pain of the resentment 
of the anger, uh, not, not saying it didn't happen, but transcending it in godly love. I have seen this, this happening in our relations with folks at Bethel AME Church. Um, our, we have this covenant relationship that at times I think reveals the power of God in overcoming the negative things in our past. Just as according to St. Paul, Christ made possible the breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, so his redemptive love can create, in the case of these other divisions, what, has, what African Americans wonderfully call a way out of no way. God makes a way out of no way, and that is what redemption is about. Christ has redeemed us, showing us the way and enabling us to bring people together across divisions under, because we are all united to the Prince of Peace, God's Son. We who were wandering far from God's intended purpose for our lives, veering far from the destiny God intends for us, are now able, through grace, to mirror Christ's own priesthood, to be reconcilers. We are called and empowered to be agents of God's love. St. Paul put it beautifully when he wrote to the church in Corinth that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So there's hope, profound hope. Thank God for the church that is here to proclaim it, we hope, in word and deed. The hymn says, soar, S-O-A-R, soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted head. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Hallelujah. <laughs>